All right, First John chapter 1, if you'd open there please. Uh, the past few weeks we've been looking at some introductory information about First John. And tonight we're ready to get started with verse number 1, a uh, three-part message that we're preaching on these first three verses. And we're going to crack open this little book and see why that this is a part of the Word of God. As all books that are in the Bible, there's a reason that God has put them there. And so what we need to do is learn what God's purpose is and to see what God would have us to know from uh, this book of 1 John. There are very, some very important truths that are found in this book. And I've already learned some very important information over the past month or so as I've been preparing these messages to get us getting started. And what I've learned is I don't really know so much after all. And uh, it's not that the things that we read about in First John are complicated. They're, they aren't really complicated. It's just that they are so wrapped up around one another and tightly woven throughout the book that, it, that if you're not careful as you go through it, you're just going to miss something that's extremely important. I think there are times when we take certain portions of this book because it's a very familiar one, and we'll pull certain scriptures out of it, like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we pull that scripture out and we use that, and we don't really give much thought as to why that particular scripture was in this particular book, what was John's purpose in saying it, and what was going on at the time that he did. And so we're going to look at this book in its context, and we're going to try to understand better why John makes the statements that he does. Now, I've chosen as the title for this message, I, I Know He's Real. Now, that may not mean very much to you right now, but I hope as we go along in the next couple of weeks that you'll see why this title is so important. Now, I'll get to that in just a moment, but let me tell you where I, I first picked up uh, this particular title, I Know He's Real. There's a song that's entitled, It's Real. And it's a song about salvation and one that talks about knowing that you're saved, having all of your doubts removed. And the chorus of the song says, It's real, it's real, oh, I know it's real. Praise God the doubts are settled, for I know it's, no, I know it's real. I always liked that song, and one of the reasons that I did was because it was one of my dad's favorite songs. Now, you'd have to know my dad to really understand what I'm about to tell you next. But he was a preacher for 40 years, pastored church. And when it came to preaching, he was just totally fearless. It didn't matter what size crowd that he was speaking to. He could get up in front of anybody and, and preach, and it wouldn't bother him a bit. But when it came to singing, that was a totally different story. He was scared to death to sing in front of anyone. And I suppose that over my lifetime, I could probably count on one hand, or at least both hands, and all that time... Uh, how many times they'd ever sang in front of the church. But one of the things that he would do is when we would have something like an attendance campaign, he would say, well, if we meet our goal in this attendance campaign, I'm going to sing in front of the church. And everybody knew he was scared to do that. And they wanted to see it. There's, all of them were sadists, you know, what, how that goes. So they wanted to see that. And um, so it, uh, if we made the attendance goal, it almost always assured that he was going to be singing in front of a large crowd. I mean, it was kind of a self-defeating thing there. But he would get up to sing, and this is the honest truth of it. If you were sitting behind him, you could actually hear his knees knock together. I mean, he was so scared when he would sing. And the song that he would almost always choose, and it was, you know, a long time between times that he would sing, so the one that he would almost always choose was the song, It's Real. Now, when I read these first few verses of First John, I think of that song. Only John is saying not it's real, but he's saying he's real, he's real. 
He says, praise God, the doubts are settled, for I know he's real. And that's a very important thing as we look at the first part of this letter. At the time uh, John wrote this letter, there were many people who were preaching that Christ was not real. I mean, not that he wasn't some kind of an entity, but that he wasn't actually God in the flesh. I mean, they would admit that he was God, but they wouldn't say that he was flesh and blood. John disputes this because he's somebody who knew Christ, and so there's no doubt in his mind that Jesus was real. And so in order to remove all the doubt in the minds of those that he's talking to, he just goes into this and explains to them in in detail here how he knows that Jesus is real. Now, let's read what John says about this. If you'd stand with me, please. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to open up this precious little book of 1 John. And Lord, as we go through this in the coming months, I pray, Lord, that you just help us to understand this and, and to know ourselves just how real that Jesus is. There, there are so many important truths to come out of this little book. Help us, Lord, as we look into this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think the first thing that we have to note about the opening verses of 1 John is the striking similarity that it bears to the gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel account says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That similarity is very important for us to note because the epistle begins without the customary salutations of a letter that people would use in those days. Of all the letters that we have in the New Testament, there's only one other letter where the author is not named. The book of Hebrews is the only other book in the New Testament uh, of the letters that were written that does not name the author. And so when Paul was writing his letters, now some do believe, of course, that Paul, most do believe that Paul was the author of Hebrews. But with all of the other letters that Paul wrote, he always introduced himself. Uh, Peter did the same, James did that, and Jude also did that. And even in Second and Third John, which also don't give the author's name, yet it does, they do begin with the elder. And we're pretty sure that that's John. That's indicative of the Apostle John because he was the oldest apostle and he was the only one living at the time that those letters were written. But this letter starts out not giving us any indication of the author. It just jumps into the subject matter without stating the name of who wrote it. And one of the reasons that we can identify the writer of this as the Apostle John is because of that similarity that it has to the Gospel of John. Now, other ways that we can tell that John wrote this is uh, according to the style that it's written in. Uh, It's uh, similar in things that John wants to talk about. And and then we also know that those who lived near to the time that John lived also attributed to the letter to him. So they said that John wrote the letter. Now, it's also evident to us that there was something that was very seriously going on wrong in this church because John just jumps into this. He doesn't hesitate. There was a heresy that was upsetting the church and something that needed to be stopped immediately before it could do too much damage. 
fellowship in the church had already been upset. There were those who were teaching false doctrine. And we learned that some had indeed left the church because of the controversies that were going on there. Now, John does not come right out and name the heresies that he's dealing with. He doesn't state it in so many words, but we can look back and we can piece this thing together to see what was wrong. We can identify the error by learning what was going on in the world at that particular time and also what kinds of movements of false Christianity have arisen since that time. There's one thing that we do need to note about heresies when they come in the church today. Uh, Solomon said there is no new thing under the sun and he could very well have been writing about church doctrine when he said that because there aren't any new heresies that we see today. Almost every time that you see a heresy that arises in the church and begins to attack Christianity, it's something that's already been seen before. I mean, there have been numerous fights over many, many different issues during the history of the church and various uh, periods of church history. We keep seeing those doctrines come up over and over again. I mean, just to give an example, if you consider a Jehovah Witness doctrine, uh, Jehovah Witnesses didn't get their start until the 19th century, but what they did was to recycle what was called the Arian controversy that was back in the early 4th century. Now, there's a lot to that, but principally the Arian controversy was over the doctrine of the Trinity. It was a denial of the Trinity, and also they said that Christ was a created being. And so most of the heresies that you see coming back today are old heresies. They just are regurgitated, uh, regurgitated in a slightly different form. And so we can follow church history, and we can look at the arguments, that, uh, the particular type of arguments that John makes, and then we can identify the problem that he faced. So we want to look then at what precipitated John's writing of this book. And we would start with this, the disease in the church. The disease in the church. Now it wasn't long, uh, just uh, really just a short time after Pentecost, that there were many attempts to pervert the gospel. I, I mentioned briefly in the last message that the first controversy that the church faced was one about legalism. In Acts chapter 15... We read, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and the elders about this question. Now this is something that took place after Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, He and Barnabas had returned to their home church in Antioch. And when they got home from that preaching tour of Asia Minor, uh, they found out that there were some men who had come to Antioch from the Jerusalem church, and they were teaching that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas began to argue with them about that, and they argued so strenuously that the church in Antioch was beginning to divide over the issue. If these men had come from the church in Jerusalem, and if they had uh, been with the apostles, could it be true that the apostles were now putting their blessing on this doctrine that they were teaching that Gentiles needed to be circumcised before they could be saved? And so they sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and the elders to find out what, the, what they were actually teaching. And so what we find in Acts chapter 15 is the very first church council that was ever called. And it was called to discuss the doctrinal error and perversion of the gospel called legalism. 
And you can imagine that with the many churches that Paul started when he was on his missionary journeys, that errors would begin to creep into those churches after he left. And because the apostles couldn't be in all places at all times, and the distances were great, and and when they heard about these things, sometimes it was long after the fact, they weren't able to get back quickly to deal with these different issues that would come up. And so those heresies would begin to grow in the church. And the apostles simply did not have the opportunity to deal with them right away. So they would grow and they would fester. And those things would become sources of great harm to the church. So legalism, that was the first problem that the church faced. But when we look at First John... John is not dealing with the issue of legalism, but he is dealing with another insidious doctrine that was infecting the church at his time, and that was a doctrine about the person of Christ, misusing doctrine about the person of Christ. I don't think any of us would misunderstand that anything that you say about Christ is going to be important. I mean, when we talk about Christianity, Christianity is Christ. Christ uh, or Christianity is not a system, it's not a philosophy, it's not even strictly a religion. Christianity is Christ. And if you don't have the correct doctrine about Christ, then you simply can't have Christianity. And so there were three very closely related movements that were attacking the foundations of Christianity when John writes this letter. And they did this by attacking the person of Christ. And that became a poison to the church. And so John had to deal with it. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about these three different uh, ideas that were being taught at that time. And this is what John is trying to address. And we won't get so much into the exposition of those three verses at this time. We'll get to that later. But what is the problem? What kind of heresies was John dealing with? Well, I mentioned these some in our introductory remarks in the first couple of messages. But the first one was Gnosticism, uh, the doctrine of the Gnostics. Gnosticism is somewhat hard to pin down into one simple doctrine because it has many, many variant forms. But it really came down basically to this, that anything that material, anything material is bad and anything that is spiritual is good. And the problem with man, these people thought, was that man was basically good in his spirit, but he was imprisoned in a material body, and the material body was bad. And so Gnosticism taught that you needed to get in touch with your spirit, man, and you had to help that win out over the evil that was in your body. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word that means knowledge. And so the Gnostics thought that they had achieved a superior knowledge, and they thought that they were above everybody else. Uh, not, every, not the normal person could actually realize uh, what, what they had found out and didn't have the knowledge that they had. And so through this greater realization of this dichotomy that existed man, then they would be able to deliver man from the material, uh, the, the very thing that was weighing man down. Now, that's why John uses the word no so many times in 1 John. 32 times he uses the word. And you'll notice this as we go through. He keeps saying, I know, or we know, we know, we know. And, and you might just want to count the numbers of times that you, go, uh, that you see that when you go through the letter. And what he was doing was refuting the idea of these heretics, these Gnostics, who said that they knew something, that they had some kind of truth that the apostles didn't have. And so the knowledge that they had was perverted, and it wasn't the truth. Now, we, we look at this, and we can see that if anything material is inherently evil, and even some of them thought that the material world was created by a bad God, but if the material things are evil and the body is evil, 
then how could the good God become incarnated? How could God have a body? And so they began to deny the incarnation of Christ, or at least what they had to do is fix it up some way to make it fit in with the superior knowledge that they supposed that they had. Now, there's a lot of error that that, that would lead a person into, and the error that these people were teaching is, is not confined to some period 2,000 years ago because the same things are being taught today. The heresy is still around. You find it in the New Age movement. You find it among the Christian scientists. Uh, some time ago, I was talking about uh, Emmett Fox, who was influential in the forming of Alcoholics Anonymous. And his philosophy is basically a philosophy of Gnosticism. And that, that is that you have the power of positive thinking that could even help you to overcome disease that's in your body. And so the key to this whole thing is what you know, and your inner self is capable of all kinds of things if you just know how to unleash it. Now that foolishness, leads really into a misunderstanding about sin. Uh, it mi- makes people misunderstand what the sin nature is all about. And that is really evident in Emmett Fox's teachings because he denied the atonement of Christ for sin. The New Age movement and Eastern mysticism all deal with the power of thought. And so they practice things like uh, transcendental meditation, which is mind over matter. And that idea where all that comes from keeps going back to this fundamental belief that matter is inherently evil and the spirit is inherently good. The Gnostics were some of the most wicked and licentious people that ever lived. Because when you reason this thing out, if the spirit is is good and the body is evil, then anything that you do with the body is okay because it never has any effect upon the spiritual. So you just go about doing whatever you want to do. But you have to be careful with these kinds of things because what you think, false knowledge can be very devastating to you. And so John had to deal with that. And so in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he he deals specifically with that issue, uh, the sin issue. He says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now John is writing that because he's dealing with these people that, that don't understand how that what's done in the material body expect, uh, affects the spiritual as well and vice versa. You can't split those things out in that way and, and say that, that the spirit man is the one that controls us. So these people had a very convenient religion because it didn't make the heavy demands of discipleship that Christ made and the apostles made when they taught. And so these people would go out and they would live it up. They had the idea that there was a great gulf fixed between the flesh and the spirit and neither one of those can pass between the two. Now that pseudo-knowledge is actually the key to Gnosticism. And they said that that is a superior knowledge. And what they had done, they had transcended what normal people know. And so what they had done was they had passed into an ethereal world where really nothing is proved, nothing is certainly known, none of it's demonstrated. And so with no proof behind it, they have nothing but speculation. Now, we'll see in the next part, in the next sermon, that that John roots out this doctrine by giving concrete evidence about Christ. This is really what verses 1 through 3 establish at the very beginning. It's the concrete evidence for who Christ really is. And this is why John says, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, he's real. And you see the difference between 
people who believe something just because they believe it, and those of us who believe in the truths of Christianity, is the fact that we have something that is real. I mean, we have something that's demonstrated. We actually believe in objective truth. And that's why in Christianity you have historical accounts, you have eyewitnesses, you have visible manifestations. We know that there was this real person named Jesus. So just because you tell people, well, I have faith and I believe something, doesn't mean that you don't have an objective truth. Our faith is not a subjective faith. It is an objective faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. But you see all of these others out here that exercise their minds trying to figure things out, and the flashpoints that they dwell on are their subjective realities. And they say, well, this is what I think, and so therefore this must be true. But relative truth doesn't have a standard. I mean, there's no meaning, uh, meaning or measuring rod to it. I mean, there's nothing that you can gauge that by, by comparison. They just say, if it's true for you, that it's true. And, and that is nothing more than a form of Gnosticism. And, and people who, who say things like that today, they're, they're following a doctrine that's really as old as the hills. There's only one truth, and it is objective. It's real, and it's demonstrated. The world is not a figment of our imagination. And even scientists who try to figure out the universe and, and they talk about the Big Bang, they're, they're still faced with the objective reality that that little speck had to come from somewhere. And, and that whatever set off the Big Bang, the force that did it was an objective reality. But those same scientists will deny the evidence of a creator. And so what they've done, they've just become nutcases who have invented an ethereal reality, which by definition would be a paradox. And so you have these self-proclaimed proponents of empirical science that are actually nothing more than flittering, feathery, wispy Gnostics at heart. They believe something just because they believe it. And all of that, folks, is the bane of good reason. And they're the ones who say that the fundamentalists are the, are the knuckleheads. Makes you scratch your head over that one. But you see where all this stuff leads? John cuts right to the chase with this because he, and he doesn't have time for introductions. He can't wait to get at this guy, these guys to show them what true knowledge is. And that's why John is so black and white with what he says. He never fools around. He says, you're either this or you ain't. You're either true, you're false, you're either saved or you're on your way to hell. And there is just no accommodating everything that's out there like you find with many churches today. Now, that's one problem, one form of the problem. It's Gnosticism. And really, Gnosticism is the underlying doctrine or belief that really covers the other two as well. But let's get a little bit more specific with this. And the second one is Docetism. And we talked a little bit about that well as well last week, I think. But Gnosticism is, is really a rather broad umbrella. And when you try to define Gnosticism specifically, it's like trying to pick up slime. You really can't do it. And so you have to take a little closer look at, at these, these different forms of it. Gnosticism can include Eastern mysticism. It includes uh, some of the pagan Greek beliefs. It can also include some Jewish practices. And so what you have to do is you have to look and see how that developed and how it finally bled over into Christianity. So the idea that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good is what underlines this, underlies this all. And so you've got to do something about Jesus. The apostles taught that Jesus came in the flesh. Well, one of the ways to refute that was this idea called docetism. And docetism comes from the Greek word that means seemed. And so they said it just seemed that Christ was in the flesh. 
the flesh is bad, and so God can never be in the flesh, and so Jesus was really a magician. He was actually some kind of a, an illusionist or something like that. It just seemed like Jesus was real. Now, if you're here with us in the Sunday morning forum class, you've heard us uh, talk about several times theophanies. In the Old Testament, we have theophanies. That, that's when God appears as man. Uh, in the case of Christ, we might narrow that down and call that a Christophany. But theophanies or Christophanies, uh, we find those in the Old Testament. And one of the examples was when uh, Joshua was about to fight the Battle of Jericho. Joshua went out to survey the landscape, and he came in contact with a man who had a sword drawn in his hand. And so Joshua asked him to declare himself. He said, are you a friend or are you a foe? Are you for us or are you against us? And the man said, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. And the one that Joshua was speaking to way back there in the Old Testament was Christ. That was God appearing as a man. And he told Joshua to take his shoes off because the place where he was standing was holy ground. That was a theophany. Well, the docetists would never go along with that. They could not accept that, that God could be in the flesh. So they said, Christ is not real in the flesh. He's not God in the flesh. He just seems to be God in the flesh. And so they denied that Jesus was really human at all. He's not really human. They, they just said or affirmed that he seemed to be human. And so when John came back and he's teaching the church that Jesus is really human, then they would refute that and they'd say, well, it just seemed that he was in the flesh. All of that is an illusion. Now, we're going to discuss a little more uh, next time in verses 1 through 3 how John rebuts their rebuttal. And so by using the word seemed, I would say that it seems here there's more of a problem simply that some just don't believe that Christ is actually in the flesh. It goes beyond that because it strikes at the root of the incarnation itself. Christ could not have been incarnate because the Gnostics were teaching that the human body is evil and uh, man is incarcerated in this body. And the only way that he can be freed from that is to be liberated intellectually by their superior knowledge. So that led then to another form of Gnosticism. And this one is called Serinthianism. Now where do we get Serinthianism? Let me give you a little bit of an interesting story about this. Serinthius uh, was actually a... Serinthius uh, rather was actually a contemporary of John. And Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, told a story about how that John went into one of the public bathhouses in Ephesus. And when he was about ready to step down into the water, he noticed that Serinthus was already in the bathhouse and was down in the water. And as soon as John saw him, he jumped up and he said, Let us fly, lest this bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is within. Now that's like me saying... Uh, you know, I, I'm saying something like, I am not going to stand on the platform with Joel Osteen lest God should strike him with lightning and get me at the same time. That, that's what John was saying there. So Serenthus was, was a heretic, and John wouldn't even get physically close to him. He wasn't going to dabble in his heresies. And that's a lesson for us to learn. I mean, it's amazing to me sometimes how, how preachers of the gospel can hobnob with heretics. And, and I guess that's why I'm not a member of the local ministerial association. I probably won't get invited because I don't think that's what we need to do. We don't even need to get close to those heresies. Don't flirt around with it. So what did Serenthus say? Well, again, he, he's still bound up by this underlying problem of Gnosticism and he's not going to accept that God could be in the flesh because the flesh is evil, matter is evil. And since God is good, he can't be embodied like Jesus and then still be God. 
But Serenthus was a little bit different from the others. I mean, he wasn't like the Docetus because he didn't deny that Jesus was human. Yes, he said Jesus was human. He wasn't born of a virgin. Uh, Mary and Joseph were his real parents, natural parents by natural birth. And as far as humans go, Jesus was one of the best of the best, but he wasn't God. And so they took an incident in Jesus' life, and they used this as a starting point of when Jesus sort of became spirit-possessed. Now, not demon-possessed, but spirit-possessed, God-possessed. And the possession occurred at the baptism of Jesus. And they say that what happened is, or he said, that the Spirit of God, or maybe more correctly, we could say the Spirit of Christ, descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and then this Spirit took over Jesus' body, and then he began to perform miracles. Now, of course, this would have happened about 30 years after Jesus was born, and Serenthus said that Jesus did not claim to, to, to be virgin-born or didn't claim to have a human father until after this time. Now, the same idea is around today. I said uh, these are old heresies. Uh, people have a, a different Christ from the Bible, and they have a physical Jesus. They don't have any problem with that, but the Jesus they have is not really God. I mean, Jesus is a really good man. He has some good-like qualities. And so God just took over a man, and then God did some good things through him. And there are false Christians who believe that even in the seminaries that are teaching preachers today, liberal seminaries that teach that, that the virgin birth is, is a myth, that it's to be disbelieved, the bodily resurrection of Christ is nothing more than a fable. They do not believe that Jesus was God. Now you can see by this why John is up in arms about this. This can't be tolerated because in the end this takes away Christ's suffering for sin and it denies uh, the sin nature in man and it turns people to sinful lifestyles. It tears down everything that Christ came into the world to do. And you would look at the Old Testament and you would see the system of sacrifices that were given there and that just makes all of it nonsensical. And then to see what the New Testament writers write that, that makes dreamers out of all of them when they talk about Christ and what he did. So these are blatant errors that John has to address. And this is why he's saying, I know that he is real. Now there's one more error that I want to tell you about in closing. And this is really what these false teachings lead to. John is the apostle of love. And this little letter is filled with references of John's love for Christ and his love for his brothers. And then it also tells us very, a great deal about how believers should love one another and how that we should also love Christ as well. But there was this problem of sinful living that would flow out of this misunderstanding of the physical man. And when you try to separate out the physical man from the spiritual man, uh, you, you have these problems of the way that people live, sinful living. But there's even a greater problem than that com comes out of it, especially when you think about simply the idea of Gnosticism. I mean, somebody that has superior knowledge. When you have people in the church who think that they are superior than others, that they've got some kind of knowledge or they've enlightened, been enlightened in some ways that other people aren't enlightened, then that leads to elitism. And naturally, people then would be saying, well, I'm on a different plane than you. I've got some spiritual understanding that you don't have. And so what I must do is to stick with others like me, and you stick with others that are like you. I, I'm on a different plane than you are. And so there is no love. And really, that's the background of why John is speaking so much about love in, in the book of First John. You wouldn't know that 
unless you knew the background of these different heresies that were going along at the time and, and what led them to be a non-loving people. And so you have people that don't love, it, love one another, not as Paul says, where he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. These aren't those kind of people. These are people that are full of strife. They're vain. They're, they're never meek. They never think of anybody lower than themselves. And so there is no love. And so John has to get at this heresy from the top to the bottom, all the way through the church, because he knows that if he lets this go, it's going to kill the church in every way imaginable. And he knows that if you even let a sliver of heresy stay in, that that disease, that that cancer will grow, and it will grow, and eventually it destroys the entire body. And so that's what we're looking at in 1 John. This is why he's writing these things. We've laid out the problem And next week, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to start to unravel this. Now, as I said, this is a cord that's wrapped very tightly, and John is going to work his way through this in five chapters, just like a a master trying to solve the Rubik's Cube. Uh, John is going to figure it all out for for us. So there's heresies, top to bottom in the church, splinters of it. We're all over the place, and those very same types of heresies are found in churches today. And this is why we so strenuously preach from the Word of God to root out heresies. You know, there was something that was told to me just this week by a brother who had been invited to preach in his church. And when he got finished preaching, he was seriously reprimanded by his pastor for what he said. And what he had done from the pulpit, he had mentioned some names. He mentioned Kenneth Hagin. I don't know if you know who that is. Kenneth Hagin, one of the Word of Faith people. He mentioned Joel Osteen and maybe one or two others. And the pastor just climbed all over him because um, he had mentioned somebody by name from the pulpit. I told him, boy, you ought to come here. Um, so we don't have any problem with that because one of the responsibilities that we have most definitely is warn people who to stay away from. Uh, here we have people that are listening to Christian Radio, Christian television, and I'll tell you again, I, I, I'm not for this. I'm, I'm simply not for this. There's uh, so much going on out there that most of the, many, many of the questions that I get are from people who want to know what, about something they heard on the radio. Stay away from a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's too hard to climb through to find something that's even half decent, decent to listen to. I just say shut the stuff off. Spend your time praying instead of, instead of listening to that junk. It's not, it's not going to help you any. But this is what we've been called to do. There is no problem with calling out names and telling people who stay away from. There is so much junk that's out there. It has to be identified. It must be preached against. We must stand on the truth of the Word of God and let people know. This is what the Apostle John is doing. He was incensed when he found out about this. And he comes back to the church. He doesn't take time to greet them. He doesn't take time to sign his name. He doesn't do anything. He jumps right in feet first on top of this error and says, let me straighten you out on some issues. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to straighten some people out on some issues and get back to teaching the truth of God's Word. And that's what we've been called to do. So we're going to look at this in 1 John today. I mean, I've just been enjoying myself today. I was writing on verse number 5 where John says, God is light. And just to understand, what did John mean when he said, God is light? And I'm going to tell you about that. And I was excited about that as I was writing about it just to figure out what does he mean when he says God is light. 
And you look up there at the light and you say, does that mean God is... What does he mean by that? God is light. He didn't say God is like light. He didn't say God is as light. He didn't say God has characteristics of light. He said God is light. That's an interesting thing to look at, I think. So we're going to. Well, we need to close now. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll sing and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to be here. And uh, what a thrill it is to look into this book. And maybe some of the things that I've said tonight are a little bit confusing to people. And trying to identify these different doctrines and what they all mean, uh, that might be difficult somewhat. But Lord, it helps us to lay the foundation and the background of why John writes the way that he writes. And this is what we do when we study your word. We want to know why it's here. What's the purpose of it? What do you want us to know from it? And we can't really understand that until we get the full picture. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look into this. Bless our people. We thank you so much that they're here to hear your word. And we just praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.